Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. And what you are about to hear will fall into the Oh Dear Boss category of shows, which are typified by being unprepared, off-the-cuff, spontaneous, and opinionated. A few weeks back, we were approached by Alec Fullerton, a journalist for the Southwest Londoner newspaper, who was preparing an article and wondered if I could help arrange for him interviews with a few Ripperologists. What better way to go about it than to gather them all up for a group chat? And so for this, he was given myself, Paul Begg, Tom Westcott, Allie Ryder, John Reese, Michael Hawley, and Trevor Bond. The piece that was published as a result of this lengthy and wide-ranging conversation will be linked to in the show notes and downloadable as a PDF on this episode's podcast page, in the event that the link to the article expires over the coming months and years. Now let's listen in to Oh Dear Boss and the Enterprising London Journalist. First of all, thank you all for talking to me. Um, I really appreciate it. It's really useful. And I feel like I'm kind of working on the premise that in the last couple of years, there's been a lot in the press about how, well, there's been this sort of prevailing argument that the way we've been approaching the Jack the Ripper legend for the past 130 years, I guess, uh, tends towards glorifying the the murderer rather than kind of remembering and commemorating the lives of the victims. Um, and I'm sure there's, I'm sure this is something that you're going to disagree with. Um, and it's not for me to take sides, but to kind of just hear everyone out. Um, but I'm kind of just interested to know, first of all, kind of how you feel about the claim that I'm sure you're all familiar with, that it kind of fails to deal with the victims and instead focuses on the um, actual murderer himself, or, or herself, potentially. Um, I guess a good place to start would perhaps be to um, kind of ask Paul what you think about it, given your more public um, kind of engagement with this. Um, well, my response to that is that for 130 years, the focus of, uh, of interest in the Jack the Ripper murders has been the mystery of the identity of the murderer. Mm. So you can hardly focus on anything else when the subject is when that's what the subject is. I mean, if you were looking after uh, Bigfoot or not looking after him, but looking for Bigfoot Mm. and then somebody came along to you and said, oh, well, the focus of your interest is Bigfoot. You'd say, well, yeah, right. (laughs) So what do you want me to do? Focus on the trees or the forest that Bigfoot lives in? I mean. I know that's a silly mm. comparison, really, but nevertheless, the the point is is that you're talking about a mystery, and that's uh, and that mystery began in 1888 when people tried to rationalise uh, murders that they were unable to, or which which was a new phenomenon to them. Mm. Uh, and so they came up with all kinds of ideas, tried to give motives to the uh, to the murderer, and it carried on until roughly the 1960s, when a, a, a much respected writer called Robin O'Dell uh, did a book in which he identified Jack the Ripper. At that point in the 60s, it kind of changed a little bit, where people started to identify specific real life individuals. Uh, like the Duke of Clarence or Walter Sickert or or whatever, but it's ju- it just changed. 
and uh, up until then it was just an attempt to try and identify the type of person that people thought Jack the Ripper might have been and it's grown and developed from there and through that of course it's become a, an international internationally known character who's taken on a completely different existence from uh, the murderer the real-life murderer, so that you now have references to Jack the Ripper uh, from people and in parts of the world where people don't even know that Jack the Ripper was real, let alone what he did, but the name conveys a meaning. And do you think, um, as Ripperologists, is, is that fair to... Would you all describe yourselves as Ripperologists? Silly name, but probably yes. <laughs> it's the easiest term to use, we find. Okay, um, and by just to just to kind of get it clear from the outset, by that we're kind of talking, basically hist historians who kind of specialise in Jack the Ripper as a as a zone of study. Is that fair to say? Uh, I would I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. I, as I said, I think it's just uh, a fringe area of uh, of interest. It's yeah. the same sort of thing as I don't want to put it in the same bracket, but it is the same sort of thing as flying saucers or Bigfoot or any kind of mystery. What happened to the crew of the Mary Celeste, Man in the Iron Mask, Princes in the Tower, just happened to have an interest in something. Mm. Uh, right. But at the same token, I mean, there's paleontologists that dig for dinosaur bones and discover and study the, the era that dinosaurs lived in and things like that. And then there are people that like Godzilla and Dra Jurassic Park movies. And, and that's fine as well. Um, so that's kind of where Ripperology and popular culture of the Ripper kind of, there's a divide there. I mean, it's, it, it covers all bases. There's okay. two parts to it, Jonathan. One, he asked if people were historians who study ripperology, and I think a lot of people get into it from a variety of different avenues. Some uh -huh. people are purely historians who started maybe studying the Victorian era and kind of fell into it. Some people, like me, are more interested in, like, I'm, I'm fascinated by psychology, and I ha I, if I wasn't, you know, what I'd be a forensic psychologist because I'm fascinated by aberrant um psychology and I sort of fell into it that way. Some people fell into it as a feminist cause. Some people fell into it purely from the mystery aspect of it. So there's lots of different avenues that people, not not pure history. I wouldn't say I'm a historian. I enjoy history. I like learning sort of bits and pieces of history here and there, but I there are people who are fascinated by Victorian history and that's pretty much their focus and that's how they fell into ripperology as sort of a adjacent to the historical aspect of it. But mm. we, as many people as are in this field, they have a different avenue that got them into this field. And then what Jonathan was speaking to, the difference between a paleontologist who studies the bones and people who like Godzilla movies, when, when you say, you know, the press uh, presents this, uh, we're more focused on on the killer as opposed to the women involved. I do believe that's a lot in the popular media and the popular mm. culture. In the movies, which is all about the, oh, let's see the woman in the low-cut bodice dying gruesomely, top-hatted killer with the king. There's more the, the entertainment which aspect of it where people forget that 
real women died in this. You know, it's 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 trivialized to a degree that you don't necessarily see in something like a World War II movie. It you know, but there's not a whole lot of you know entertainment purely spectacle entertainments revolving around other tragedies like there are around the Jack the Ripper murders. Mm. And you don't, I, you don't think that Ripperology falls into that trap? No. I mean, there are people who probably say they're Ripperologists, but like if you, nobody's going and reading Paul Begg's book and coming away with like, wow, that was, you know, like a gruesome blood thir you know, it, it, it depends. It's, it's, it's the, it is literally the difference between, uh, I, I can't even think of an example because there really isn't an example where there's something where there is like actual academic study that's just completely trivialized in the media. It's kind mm -hmm. of like this weird, um, somebody can probably come up with one. It would be, you know, the paleontologist studying the dinosaur bones and then there's a Godzilla movie and saying, or, oh, Jurassic Park. The science in Jurassic Park was utter junk. Fascinating movie, but the science in it was junk. So if you took a paleontologist and say, well, do you think that Jurassic Park was a real representation of, you know, no, they, dinosaurs right. probably had feathers. They didn't look like that. This is a thing, you know, it, it, it's, it's maybe that, but not even that, because it's not like we're studying something where real dinosaurs run around ripping the heads off of people. And now we're trivializing it in Jurassic Park. You know what I mean? So my, uh, I'm Mike Colley. Uh, my background's paleontology and I have peer review in paleontology so it's kind of, how fun is this but what happened was is uh and for me particularly is i i'm excited about peer review and when i got involved i i love discovery and, and mystery that got me involved with this so i i actually focus on one particular suspect francis tumbledy and he is there's so much uh you know already two books there's actually more that we just discovered on the guy and so it's just about discovering stuff and rediscovery and actually what I call in peer review is reliable knowledge. And the, the thing is, is the focus is getting reliable knowledge into this world. And one of the things that when I uh, doing this research, our peer review is basically casebook because the experts rip each other apart. Rippercast, same thing. Also, we have uh, Paul Bag who does a review. Uh, if he doesn't rip you apart, nobody does. So uh, it's, we really have this. But let's circle back around to um, how uh, victims. Yeah. I don't want to get out too sidetracked because we will we'll be here all day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which, which does happen. Which does happen. John, I could tell you were desperate to say something earlier. Yeah, what I, I, think, I think the examples we were given, the best one I can think of would be the Richard III um, Society. Mm. So you know, you've got people studying Richard III who are academic historians in universities, and then you've got amateur historians writing books as well, and then you've got the complete fringe nutcases who are the ones that seem to present the front of the media like what's her name stroking the hair of the model of richard the third in the the, the 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 burial announcement and stuff like that so mm -hmm. that's the best analogy i can think of okay you've got and what, king arthur and robin hood as well uh, have their fringe areas and in fact uh, an academic historian whose name escapes me for the moment was complaining only uh, a couple of years ago in the preface to his book about how all these uh, Arthur loonies were coming out with a constant stream of theories about who they thought Arthur was, when, in his view, Arthur was so lost in the mists of time that he was irrecoverable. So uh -huh. he didn't 
he thought that the publishers were conning people and the authors were conning people and, and so forth. But really, they were like us. All they're interested in is that they really are interested in, in the theories. They like to read and think about and discuss and share their viewpoints on the, the different arguments and, and evidence and so forth. Mm -hmm. About the Ripperology ignoring the victims, right? Well, it's hard to talk about Jack the Ripper without talking about the victims and, um, and their lives and circumstances. And, and like Ali was saying, people who studied Victorian history, you know, the lives that they all coexisted with. But at the end of the day, as Paul said, this is a series of unsolved murders. I and, would point out... I'm oh, sorry, Jonathan, go on. Well, I was just going to say, like, whether you're talking about uh, five <laughs> murders, like Hallie, or nine, or 12, or 15, or whatever, it does bring a measure of justice to the victims who we already know an awful lot about mm. when you're finally able to name the perpetrator and a percentage of ripperologists are focused on making that identification right but i yeah. would suggest that that's a minority percentage of yeah. the field of ripperology i think in terms of jonathan's right that you can't it's actually impossible to look at the case without giving any attention to the victims because without them there is no case but obviously there are different ways of presenting that evidence and i can see where people come from with the sensational side of the way the case is presented sometimes that their real lives and their lives are real three-dimensional people are sometimes the other side to that though if you remember a few years ago when we had the jackson <coughs> museum opening and a number of articles written uh, in the major in the mainstream press about that I mean, a lot of those articles had major factual errors in them. I'm thinking of one uh, in particular that said, you know, all the victims were raped, for example. Now, that's fairly basic research to find out that that's not true. And part of me reads that and thinks, why do you need to make this seem even worse? It's bad enough already. And... I think what we're dealing with is an issue of, yeah, the popular, the tip of the iceberg, if you like, the stuff that gets serialized in the papers, the stuff that gets on the, on the, in the window of Waterstones mm. is often quite suspect focused and quite, here's the gruesome details and, and not necessarily at a depth of research that actually is going on beneath the waterline. But the general public don't see that. And so obviously they judge the field by what they see. And but back to those articles around the time of the Ripper Museum, you know, I did think it was a little bit rich that there were all these articles coming out saying how, and I was very much against the Ripper Museum, as many of you will be aware. So I was on the same side as these people, if you want to see things in that mm -hmm. way. But if you're writing an article saying this whole field of people and it's an ill-defined field and there is no peer review and there is no qualification that you need to do to call yourself a ripperologist or to be a member of this community and because of that it is a broad church people do good things people do bad things but 
to lump everyone in together and say ripperologists are all gore obsessed and awful and they don't care about the facts of the victims lives and then in your article right saying that you get things wrong about the victims lives where's the fault lie point that mike raised is I think that's true, and as I say, there is no—it's not an academic field of study. And the Richard the Third Society is a good comparison to that. And it's difficult if you ever try and generalise a whole field. Mm. Um, but peer review for me would be great. I know there have been ambitions in the past to have ripperology recognised as a proper academic discipline. But as far as peer review goes, yeah, that's great. And you're right, it is the ripperologist, it is the ripperologist, it is casebook. Unfortunately, if anything, I think that's more difficult to achieve on a consistent basis now than it was maybe five, ten years ago. Because a lot of the discussion has gone on to Facebook groups, for example. And the way those work, you can have a closed shop of the people on group A that agree with you and there'll be another group that's group B with the people that agree with the person running that group and so there isn't any peer review it just becomes a succession of echo chambers and I remember I mean when you mentioned peer review the only time I've ever really heard that come up recently for example which we probably all recall was with Russell Edwards and the shawl a few years ago about 2014 I think his book came out didn't it and there was a lot of criticism at the time that Dr. Yari, the scientist involved with the testing of the shawl, had not submitted his approach to testing the DNA to peer review. And that's an absolutely valid point. But it only came up because suddenly ripperology was being looked at from a scientific point of view. And the, I did think, as, as flawed as Russell Edwards' theory was, and I've got no problem saying that, I did actually think it was a little bit unfair, to be honest, that he was being told, well, this hasn't been peer-reviewed. Well, who peer-reviews the numerous suspect books that come out every year? No one. And that's why the public are going to judge all of us, if you like, it, by that standard, aren't they? I would just like to step in here and just make uh, two, possibly three points, which I think are important. First of all, when people say that we don't focus on the victims or do anything on the victims, uh, it's important, I think, to probably realize that in 130 years, the only people who have taken any interest at all in the victims are ripperologists. Nobody else has found out anything at all. Up until the 1970s, none of the official documents on the case were available to public inspection. And the only real newspaper that you had to, uh, to go to was the Times, because that was distributed around the country on microfiche, as it was back then, and then microfilm. So you couldn't, you didn't have any of these databases that could provide you with uh, the newspaper articles as you can now. Uh, and it wasn't actually until 2000 that Stuart Evans and Keith Skinner produced a book that had or reproduced all the official documents. So unless you lived in London and you had access to the record repositories there, 
trying to do any kind of research on this from anywhere else in the country was an extremely expensive and and time-consuming exercise. You'd have to go down to London just to look through, and you'd be making notes all the time. You know, that's your fortnight's holiday gone if you're working in an office. Uh, so it's only since 2000, really, that we've started to have access, or we have had access, to the source material. And you'll see that there has been a significant change since, really, 1988, which was the centenary year, and it has grown over the the 1990s up until 2000 we've seen a significant change of people going from the speculative aspect about about who jack the ripper was and and coming up with all kinds of theories uh historical way and serious way and demanding things such as sources and uh and having footnotes and and so all sorts of other things and looking at the history in a broader perspective as well so although we talk about 130 years of uh, uh, a ripperology the reality is is that it's only been kicking around for roughly about 30 years uh, and less than that it's it in, in if you just look at the documentation availability is 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 literally 18 years so it's a in many ways it's a very new subject to look at and I think that those are two important things to, to realize is that we haven't been able to look at the lives of the victims in a huge amount of detail until relatively recently. And to criticize ripperologists for not having done it in the past is, is in my view, wrong. I think ripperologists have been looking, but it hasn't been published in the mainstream, which isn't the fault of ripperologists, it's the publishing industry. Because they want to produce books about who the Ripper was, not about who the victims were. So I think the two main books I can think of about the victims were self-published or through small publishers. And it's only with um, Hayley Rubenhold, is it? Her book yeah, is Hayley Rubenhold, yeah. yeah. Yeah, her book coming out this year, I think, is the first one through a major mainstream publisher. Really? But um, it's because the publishers haven't wanted it. I think... Paul's probably going to might agree with me or disagree with me here, but how often would it be when writing a factual book about the Ripper where they the publisher would want a suspect at the end? Well, they always did, and I mean, I had enormous difficulty in 1988 trying to find a publisher who was interested in looking at the police investigation. I mean, we're talking about a murder here, and there hadn't at that stage been a book completely devoted to uh, to, to, to the crimes and the police investigation, and which eschewed all discussion insofar as was possible of suspects. Mm -hmm. I was the first to come along and do that, and that sort of changed things a little bit, but it's only now you get somebody like Hallie Rubenhold who's got a bit of a foothold in uh, writing about the demi-monde, albeit uh, in Georgian England, who's come along to write something about the, the victims. Now, she tries to maintain that um, ripperologists have ignored all the victims. And only recently there was something in the press of, from her that uh, to the effect that three of the victims weren't prostitutes. Mm. And she was, she's been saying that, that, or is reported as saying that this was uh, a result of uh, sexist policemen at the time and researchers ever since. In fact, 
we've looked at whether they were prostitutes. There are documentation in, in the police reports that they were prostitutes. One of the women that she says wasn't a prostitute, her husband refused to pay, continue paying uh, financial support when he discovered that she was a prostitute and was taken to court and his argument was proved correct. So we don't know what was in all the documentation because virtually all of it is missing. Um, and so we, we, you know, we, we question, we've made these questions, we've asked these questions and we've, we've come to our solutions of it. And as John says, it's largely because that stuff hasn't really found uh, a public publisher. I don't think any of us. I, I think I, somebody like Stuart Evans or myself, we might have been very lucky if we'd gone to a publisher and said, look, I want to do a book about Jack the Ripper's victims, only because we've got a track record. But even I don't think that, I, I honestly don't believe that if I'd gone to a mainstream big mainstream publisher and suggested this. I don't think I would have mm. got past the secretary on the front door. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and it's, per it's partially the timing too, what with Me Too and the whole <laughs> feminist wave and everything coming out. Now it's more of a push to include female perspectives in historical reworking how we used to view history purely through the eyes of the men into also including the female perspective. So I think that that book coming out now is as much a product of the current times we live in. It's not that there isn't any interest and the fact that it is a woman writing it, whereas 20 years ago it would not have been considered. The woman's perspective in anything in history wasn't really considered. I mean, what did they do? They bore children and sewed clothing, big whoop kind of thing. So mm -hmm. I, I do believe that it's the new interest and in including the feminine viewpoint that, that is allowed for this book to be published. Mm -hmm. as much as anything else. Not that the research hasn't been there all along and hasn't been being done. Uh, it's just there was no interest mainstream in, you know, what is basically a typical story of a group of women who lived, you know, n you know, their decisions led them to unfortunate places in their lives and, and things happened, which is a story that's happening on the street down from where any of us live today. Mm -hmm. um, it's just what it, no one's writing a book about it kind okay. of thing. I want to slip in one. I want to slip in one thing um, about kind of what also what Trevor was saying. So as far as like um, how Ripperology has portrayed the victims, one of the side things that a lot of us have um, been kind of keeping track of and pointing out is the use of fake um, photographs of the victims. Fake photographs, photographs of Victorian women purporting to be photographs of the victims from life first began to be you know popped up on the internet from day one pretty much and so one of the things that when we would come across uh, photographs purporting to be of Elizabeth Stride or Catherine Eddowes or Mary Kelly from life we'd, we'd uh, make it known you know to our granted it's like an echo chamber when we Hey, you know, here, here's a website purporting to show a, a photograph of Catherine Eddowes. Invariably, you would get new people joining the case asking, um, and this still happens to this day, is this a photo of Catherine Eddowes? And we always have to say no. The only photograph that exists of a, of a victim in life is the one Neil Sheldon discovered of Annie Chapman. Yada, yada. We've, we've been doing this for years. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the alternative 
Ripper tour that was created to um, focus more on the lives of the victims. Yeah. Which we, which I um, publicized um, on, you know, my Facebook group and, um, you know, more so than I publicize other Ripper tours on my Facebook group. I think it's a good idea in theory. Uh, it's a welcome addition to the field. Uh, you know, Ripper tours um, could benefit from tours that claim to, I haven't been on it, but that, that claim to, to uh, make an added focus about the lives of the victims, where they lived, where they were married, where they worked, whatever. But when they used fake photographs of the victims to advertise their tour, it throws up all sorts of red flags. So it's kind of like touching on what Trevor was saying earlier. You, you have an article about the Ripper Museum that we agree with on principle, but then yet throws in these absolute falsehoods just for the sake of sensationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, with the alternative tour, we're kind of with this, we're kind of in the same thing. We, we, we'd like to support and do support, you know, their, their, um, angle that they take to the case. Um, but, are disappointed that they choose to use photographs purporting to be the victims from life when they're not. To that, that to mm-hmm. us, or to me anyway, shows um, an insensitivity to the real victims of this murder. And I don't know if anyone else wants to chime in on that, but that's... Well, I'd like to chime in here. Hi, Alec. Uh, this is Tom Westcott. Uh, I forgot well, he was there. He's been so unusually quiet. <laughs> well, you guys have been—I've been soaking it up, and I've also been watching a, a very handsome man surrounded by Christmas, Christmas lights, wearing a <laughs> Halloween T-shirt. And I feel like I found my spirit in. But, um, uh, Mr. Alec, it's my pleasure right. to meet you. I wanted to just chime in and say succinctly that the argument that Ripperologists have ignored the victims. Um, is just invalid because as Paul said earlier, they would be the only people who have ever cared about the lives of the victims are ripperologists. Any tour, anything that happens talking about the lives of uh, the victims is drawing their information from uh, material produced by ripperologists, genuine ripperologists and another point uh you know do we focus on the killer absolutely we do um and when i say we i'm speaking the public in general and the reason is um, when it comes to each of the victims we know the moment the date the minute that their story ended uh with the killer we do not have that piece so anyone who is who is uh, cursed with curiosity, and you're a journalist. You, you, I mean, that's that's what you do. You get a question in your mind, and you have to answer it. Um, if your only question was, wow, what were these women like? How did they die? You're going to learn that uh, with one or two trips to the library. Greater question, uh, you know, who, who killed them and why? Mm. That is inevitably going to be the pursuit, and there's, there's nothing anti-feminine about that. Um, uh, you know, it's the it's the same in any, you know, Lizzie Borden, did she or didn't she? That's the question. That's always the question. Did she or didn't she? Uh, you know, John Bonet, Ramsey. Uh, mm. You know, no book's going to come out where the story ends with the six-year-old's biography. 
right? And she dies, and then there's nothing after that. Um, how and why, how and why, and in the case of the Ripper, who, who. Uh, so that that is, you know, we know when their stories ended, but then there's this big question mark. And I've written two books on the Ripper case, and like uh, John uh, Reese mentioned earlier, I self-published them. And there's two reasons for that. One, you you actually, in this today's world, you make more money doing that than if you gave all your money to a publisher. But the other reason is full control. Um, I don't think a major publisher would not have accepted either of my books due to the fact that my I was not ending by saying, here's who I think Jack the Ripper was. They were research pieces. But if you read the books, I mean, it's clear when you're reading them, I am extremely curious to know who killed these women mm-hmm. and but I also, you know, go to uh, great lengths to present every sh- scrap of information I have uh, at my disposal about the women and their lives, where they lived, where they visited, who were their friends, because that can also, it, it fills in their biography. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to study this case and not be curious about all the people you're studying. Uh, and that certainly includes the victims. Uh, and you, you hunger to know more. Mm-hmm. But at this point in their biography, it's all just about minutia. We've we've discovered most of what's out there. Little pieces will come about. I presented a couple new pieces in my last book, Ripper Confidential, that hadn't been in any book and were just uh, on the internet. But it's minutia at this point. That's it. We know how where they were born, who their parents were, who their siblings were, who their children were, and we certainly know when and how they died. It's all about minutia at this mm-hmm. point. I'd also say that books, as a general rule, uh, if you think in terms of any historical or scientific study, probably, um, most of the discussion goes on not in books, but in academic journals. Uh, And that's where the new information starts to come along. And when that gets accepted, then it gets to pass into books. And so the general public is invariably uh, a little way behind reading right. any historical uh, subject for that reason. Um, and the same thing applies to Jack the Ripper, except we don't have that array of academic journals and peer review. What we have got uh, are sites like Casebook or a journal like Ripperologist. I wouldn't classify, unfortunately, anything on social media as uh, relevant because just like on Twitter, you get somebody puts up a little tweet and then they've got all those people who follow them and that is insulting. A troll? <laughs> no, no, it, 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 I came across it recently and I thought, oh, I must remember that. And I, you know, clearly I have. But I am the oldest amongst you all, so uh, <laughs> I, I can oh, claim age. By a mile, yeah. <laughs> but, thanks, Tom. I, or, or what is it you Brits would say, by a kilometer? I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, they, they didn't have kil- kilometers when I was uh, little. Uh, that's a recent invention. <laughs> okay, so, Alec, do you have uh, more questions? We, we kind of talk and ramble. So. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's fascinating. And funnily enough... Take an hour to answer that one. He's only come up with one at the moment. <laughs> well, I'm going to say, you, you kind of, I've, got, I've got about ten questions down on this. You've gone, through, you've gone through more than half in just kind oh, of... Well. We'll put an order in for breakfast, shall we, now? <laughs> um, but something I do want to ask is you've, 
you're you're talking about the distinction between kind of proper researched, um, you know, hardworking ripperology that focuses on the facts and kind of although there's an inevitable focus on the killer because that's the reason, right? That's the reason it's so famous, isn't it? 130 years, no one knows who did it, so inevitably the focus is going to be on that. But I'm interested to know, like, how in your in your work be it podcasts, be it writing books, be it writing articles, how do you, what do you do to try and make sure that the victims and their lives are respected and not in like, for example, the, um, something I saw when the, the uh, museum opened in Cable Street in 2015, people were kind of shocked about their, they had a, something about like, um, for Halloween, come and take a selfie with Jack the Ripper. And now I'm not, I, there's a, obviously a big distinction between that kind of thing, which is clearly poor taste and the work that you guys do. But I, I want to know how you, what distinguishes you from that, basically? I'll uh, describe the podcast um, real quick, just to get that out of the road. Yeah, sure. Um, so we began in 2008. And in that first year, we released 37 podcast episodes. I believe we're, we're like considered the first true crime podcast, although at the we didn't we didn't think of it at the time at all, right, guys? Yeah. I don't um, think the word podcast existed when Rippercast started. I don't. Maybe it did. I had. I it was my. I'd never heard of it before. Um, yeah. Well, there certainly wasn't a category of podcasts called true crime ten years ago. There and, was, and and I'm not, and I'm still not sure if we would call the podcast true crime today, really. But mm-hmm. but it's considered true crime for better or worse. Anyway, within the first. Um, two years of the show we devoted a whole bunch of episodes to the lives so we covered all of the canonical five victims all of the non-canonical victims all of the thames torso murder victims um some of the women we discussed more than once in standalone episodes mary mm-hmm. kelly the victim that that ironically is the most mysterious. We talked about everything known about her in a two-part episode that combined lasts almost four hours. Wow. So, so, but one of the things um, from the very beginning, the, the standard that the podcast has set for itself is to treat them with the utmost respect while still being honest about their lives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, um, and to contrast it with like the Ripper Museum, although photographs of all the victims and death are out there, the only time in the 10-year history of the show we have ever used a photograph of a victim in death as the podcast artwork was when we had Andrew Cook on the show to discuss why he chose to use the Mary Kelly crime scene photo for the cover of his book. Many ripperologists at the time, and this has been years ago, yeah. uh, found the cover of his book to be distasteful. Mm-hmm. And so I used his book cover as the podcast art to illustrate the topic of the show. And that's the only time a victim's photograph has ever been used in an episode of Rippercast. So we've done 160 of them. And um, so that's one way. But in general, I think that if anyone listens to any episode of the show, there's an obvious high level of taste and respect that our guests, in in the case of the 
conferences in the Whitechapel Society, the guest speakers to their events bring to the topic. There's podcasts out there that have covered Jack the Ripper before. They mm. do kind of a Wikipedia version of the Jack the Ripper. And they're a lot more popular podcasts than we are. Um, are, you, are you thinking about like My Favorite Murder kind of thing? My Favorite Murder, True Crime Garage, Generation Y, whatever, all of those, you know. Rippercast is the longest-running podcast devoted to a single case, a single crime case. In this case, the Jack the Ripper case. It's the hands down, like by a huge margin, the longest-running devoted to a single case. There are precious few of those in existence. Um, and part of the reason is those uh, general true crime shows um, are going for popular. They're, they're, they're populist programs designed to appeal to the greatest amount of number of people and they make a lot of money they have conventions uh rippercast is is devoted to one interest and in studying that uh intricately and from all different angles um and you know, of course jonathan never shies from having someone on the program who will put us up to scrutiny someone from outside of our field who will put us up to he invites everyone now they often choose not to step into the ring and that's their choice. But, um, you know, just like for instance, speaking with, with you today, Alec, mm. uh, you know, he's taking a chance and a risk and how he'll be presented in the media and all that, but he's comfortable with that. And he's fine with that. Why? Because the show has integrity. Um, and it always has, and it always will. That's just what it's about. And I personally think when it comes to the victims, uh, it's disrespectful to try and make them into something they're not by prettying their lives up. Uh, Marianne Nichols, I wrote extensively about her in Ripper Confidential, and, and I wanted to include everything I could find in there. And, and, and a lot of that it, it wasn't pretty. You know, she was an alcoholic. She lived rough in the parks. Uh, uh, you know, she would carry a knife on her. She attacked people with this. Um, all of these things. She abandoned her family. <clears throat> but, you know, I didn't want to pretty her up and, and, and disrespect her by trying to make her into my image of what a proper woman should have been. Mm. Here she is. Here's what we've learned about her. Here's, here's what it tells us about it. This was not a weak woman. She was full-figured. She was husky. She could defend herself. And yet someone was able to silently murder her on a street without two thoughts. Um, that tells us as much about him by presenting her as she was in life. And I've come under some fire for doing that. And in my books by people who shall be unnamed feminists who are like, how dare you? And then they want to say, oh, they weren't prostitutes. Oh, they weren't alcoholics. Oh, they were forced by the patriarchy to abandon their family. None of that. If they want to believe that, that's fine. But I don't see how that's respecting the victim's memory by creating uh, an alternate memory of their lives or an alternate version of their lives. Well, it's not respecting the truth, is it? And that's what history It is. should be, yeah. It's Well, and, it used to be. History used to yeah, be that. It's not anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it comes back to something that was mentioned a little while ago. Uh, I think it was Paul that mentioned it, so I'd be interested in his opinion on this. Um, the, about the article's this claim that all the victims weren't prostitutes and that was a claim that also came up a couple of times in those Ripper Museum articles a couple of years ago and my immediate response to that is why does it matter like are the people not are the people saying that suggesting that 
if they weren't, you know, on the one hand, they're saying these women are worthy of study. And yeah, they're misguided in saying that people haven't done that before. But that's what they're, that's their headline. These women are worthy of study. Oh, and by the way, some of them weren't prostitutes. So are you saying that if they weren't, that makes them more worthy of study? Mm-hmm. If they were, that makes them less? I, I don't see why that exactly. matters. It's, the truth it's counterintuitive the truth. to feminism. It's completely counterintuitive to feminism. These women should not have to be seen as better than they were in order for everyone to recognize that regardless of their circumstances, they did not deserve to be murdered, um, period. Like, oh, well, she wasn't a prostitute. Clearly now, y'all understand what a tragedy this was. Well, no, it's a tragedy whether she was a prostitute or she wasn't a prostitute. But there is, like, I do believe this new interest in their lives is is trying to make them seem to humanize them. And the only people who've never seen them as being human are the people whose only concept of Jack the Ripper is from what they got from a, you know, a movie that they saw on late night television. These women have always been human to those of us who've studied it. We understand that everybody's flawed. You're flawed. I'm flawed. All of our flaws doesn't mean we deserve to be brutally murdered by a serial killer. And this, this idea of making them better than they were is, is very much an offense to me. And cause I have, and I've been arguing this for 20 years, you can go back on Facebook forums and probably find me you know, in 2002, having the same argument um, with some people that uh, trying to make, oh, Stride wasn't soliciting. She was on a date. Oh, give Bye. me a break. You know, um, <laughs> like stop trying to make them, stop trying to pretty them up so that middle class white dudes can be like, oh, that poor thing. Like that, that shouldn't be what it is. And you yeah, don't Jack just Ripper was, them a, up. was a prostitute killer. Right. That's, that's, he would choose those victims intentionally. Um, that's what he. I mean, how else do you get a woman into a dark corner willingly before you attack her? She's a prostitute. That, that's that's what he went after, and that's who his victims were. If any of these women were not at all prostitutes, they wouldn't have been Ripper victims. Mm. One leads to the other. To some extent, the argument as to whether they were prostitutes or not uh, is not so much about what they were but is an attack on ripperologists it's it's saying look you guys have just accepted something without even bothering to question it yeah whereas in fact we have questioned it and we right. have got the documentation uh that confirms what we have said and uh i i was quite interested <laughs> quite recently to notice that in a book that was published uh, 12 years ago, the authors, uh, who are Stuart Evans and Don Rumbelow, uh, take the authors of the Jack the Ripper A to Z to task for starting a popular movement of, uh, that to, to the effect that Catherine Eddowes wasn't a prostitute. Uh, given that I was one of the authors of that book, <coughs> uh, I was just quite interested to note that we're being told, oh, well, they, they've, nobody's ever asked this question, and then I'm being taken to task for asking that very question mm. okay so do you think it's do you think it's fair to say like we've been talking about the kind of the links of well the, the difficulties of books about the victims being published what in the past 30 years and now suddenly kind of one of the things i'm interested in is why now it's like only it only seems like since kind of 2015 that this kind of attack on ripperology has started um do you think it's kind of is there something kind of cynical about why it's all happening now 
And well, it's not new. It started in the 70s with the Jack the Ripper pub and the, the protests to close that down. Oh, really? Um, and that's when that's really when Jack the Ripper... Uh, more, more books about Jack the Ripper have been published in the last two or three years than in the first 50 years following the murder. So yeah. there was no Ripperology for the most of the last 130 years. It began in earnest in the 70s with uh, the best-selling book uh, by Stephen Knight, uh, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. That led to public, it, it, he became a public property at that time, and the Jack the Ripper pub opened. Huge mar marches, protests against, against that, yeah. largely by Jack feminists. Um, Jack and Pub also had strippers on at lunchtime and things like that. So it was, really? uh, yeah. Oh my God. The thing that's different is now with social media and the internet is that you can find out about these things much more easily. So when there is an outrage, it spreads like wildfire across um, the platforms. I know that when a movie goes out about Jack the Ripper, we have a spike in people registering for Casebook trying to come on and say it, it's it, the 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 ease of availability and everybody you know wanting some of it is people look for things to be outraged about some of it's legit like the strippers that's a legit be outraged about that um but a lot of it is just people have a lot more ease of access to information so they can find out about some of these things more easily and also use their voice more easily to protest them um sometimes sincerely and sometimes just because it's you know a thing to do just yeah. very quickly make a correction here. Uh, when the Ten Bells was called the Jack the Ripper, there were no strippers uh, active at that time. Uh, it had been, it was the, still the Ten Bells uh, when the strippers were introduced, and they came along largely because uh, the then landlord of the pub had uh, undertaken a fair bit of work on the pub uh, in order to cater for workmen who were going to were going to be coming into Spitalfields Market to undertake major construction work there, and that was all postponed. So suddenly, he'd got a pub which he'd converted for the Dirty Boots Brigade to come in and make a mess and and everything, uh, whereas everybody else had got nice carpeted comf well, insofar as the East End was nice carpeted pubs. Um, so he had to do something to to drum up some trade and so he did a tour uh of some of the other pubs in the area where there were strippers and and uh located one that was a fairly decent kind of um, bunch of strippers another bit of irony i think um in the pre pre internet like social media explosion days is when I when I mentioned Neil Sheldon discovering the photograph of Annie Chapman, um, and he wrote a book about the photographs and the genealogy of uh, Jack the Ripper's victims. There it is, John. Thank you. Um, you got them all in a pile next to you. Is this scripted? Are you just knowing what's going on? Um, Neil, when we mentioned the photographs, if you if, uh, you all. Uh, the guests will remember how careful and considerate Neil was to the um, fam the family members who provided yes. him these photographs and the genealogy information and everything in order for him to produce his book. 
And initially, he didn't want the, the photographs of Annie Chapman or her children publicized anywhere outside of that book. And then the shortly afterwards, a, a movie came out that was a re, the remake of the uh, Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Lodger, um, back in the early 2000s or something. And sure enough, in the either in the opening credits or in the end credits, there appeared the picture, I believe, of one of Annie Chapman's children um, from Neil Sheldon's book. And and um, because it was in the credit sequence, it was like, you know, shows up on screen very briefly and then it's like splattered with blood. And I got upset. A, a, a few other people on the Casebook message boards got upset. And um, but that's where it ended. You know, now, if something like that were to happen in 2018, it, it would be used as an example of how Jack the Ripper and Ripperology by guilt by association is, is just a sensational gore fest exploiting the victims, right? Whereas back then, we were the only ones upset about it. it uh, but, you know, now it would be used as a weapon against us, I think. Don't you guys agree? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, entirely, yes. It's manufactured range. I mean, yesterday I saw a meme going around with Zac Efron uh, in his new role as Ted Bundy, and it and the the headline was, Zac, Zac Efron is strangely sexy as Ted Bundy in the new biopic. And so, you know, Ted Bundy is, has always been a, a, a sex symbol of, of serial killers, and now by casting, of course, a guy far more attractive than Ted ever was to play him. They're playing up on the sexy serial killer, Ted Bundy. Um, and that'll be, but no one's, I was outraged. No one's outraged about that. Uh, you know, but for some reason, I think it's because his name is Ted Bundy and didn't have the word Ripper in his name. When you, when you call someone Jack the Ripper and your actual name is the description of what you did to women, I, I, I think that that is, his name is so sensational. Um, that that attracts the attention to Jack the Ripper that you just don't see with, with other serial killers. Um, and he is the original. He is the most famous. He's legendary. He was never caught. All you know, the, the Sherlock Holmes, the, the swirling fog, the gaslight, all of these things are so attractive to people on so many levels, the mystery of it all. Um, that, you know, it, you can't, it, it's just naturally sensational. The irony is the people who move past the sensationalism are really only the ripperologists. It's just us. We're the, and yet we, we catch the flack for it somehow. Um, but we're we're like the opposite of what we're of, and it's it's the mass public. I mean, I run one of the biggest Jack the Ripper Facebook pages, and I totally second what Paul says. There's the, these things are void of research or anything valid. It's uh, I have people trying to join the site named like Demon God Ripper Lover and stuff, and I don't let them in if I can help it, um, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, and it's it's mostly just people asking inane questions over that you answered a thousand times, but they're curious. You know, what book should I read? What book should I avoid? Have you guys read Patricia Cornwell's book? All that stuff. And all the books, uh, like about 100% of the books that get major, major press, are none of them are written by ripperologists. They're people who come in, write one book, 
make a ton of money, um, always through a major publisher. Um, so, uh, so the, the major public, and they have no, the publishing companies have like no standards on what they'll publish. Big name author publishes book. It's not accurate. Who cares? Put it out there. They make a ton of money. The authors, all of them bash ripperologists. Usually Paul Begg for some reason. He always comes under <laughs> fire. All, always. Well, mind uh, you, you bash me, Tom, so I mean... No, no I love you, Paul. <laughs> no, I don't bash Paul. I love Paul. His books are, uh, you know, clearly the best, and that's why he comes under fire um, so much, is, is because he is the, you know, he's like the Elvis or whatever, so he's going to catch <laughs> us the heat. But... They, and then they I disappear. wish I could do an Elvis impression now. I really wish I could just <laughs> do an Elvis impression. But yeah, also all the you know the the general public, you know, and and my books sell whenever that happens. You know, people go get interested in Jack the Ripper. They go to Amazon. What other books can I buy? And uh, you know, and so that's fine. I don't mind that too much. It's just par for the core. I'm used to it. I guess I'm numb to it. Every three years, some new major book um, who is famous for. Uh, totally different reasons than Ripperology. It's going to come out, it's going to make a bunch of fuss, and then it'll be forgotten about, more or less. Um, but uh, we're going to end up, we end up catching the heat for that in the end, because during the media blitz of this new book, mm. it's all sensationalism, gore, Jack the Ripper, who was he, uh, and then that enrages, you know, whoever want, is looking for a reason to be angry. Uh, and so they attack Ripperology because they don't understand that we're separate from those things. We're totally, as a community, we're separate from those things. Yeah, but, but one of the things that, that, that makes it different now is that, um, is, is that you know, when, when you know, the centenary happened and you had a slew of Ripper books come out, that got a lot of attention for Ripperology. But now with social media and the Daily Mail and things like that, now it seems like it's oversaturation with the Ripper story um, because Francis Thompson will have a viral article about, uh, you know, on the Internet. Um, you know, uh, when Weston Davies, uh, his, his uh, Mary Kelly theory went viral. You had the guy, uh, David Bullock, who uh, was a proponent of the Cutbush theory. His suspect the theory yeah. went viral. Jill the Ripper goes viral every six months. Now, it's like there's no, like, you're interviewing us, Alec, like, 130th anniversary, um, you know, um, a, a renewed attention bring, being brought to the Ripper murders for some reason. But, but in reality, it's like, it seems like, now it's so fast and furious with the Ripper news that it, it gets to be oversaturation to where, like Tom was kind of saying, you know, um, we end up getting blamed for all of it. Ripperologists are all crazy. I'll right. ask you a question, uh, if I may. Yeah. Uh, a little while back... Um, I think it was the same people who do the alternative uh, walk. Yeah. Uh, had a church service. I think it was uh, yeah. to yes. commemorate the memory of, uh, of Marianne Nichols. Mm. I remember. And certainly the newspaper report or one of the newspaper reports I saw yeah. uh, had a photograph of a person who was purported to be 
Mary Ann Nichols. And I think it, I'm right in saying that they had a big picture of that in the church. Yes. Uh, when, the, when the service was, was conducted. Possibly. Now, now, either way, uh, they had this fake photo associated with what was going on. I want I what I asked myself when I saw this is why were they doing this? Uh, what was their purpose and what can we draw from what they did by having or allowing the wrong or a, not just the wrong photograph but a non photograph? Uh, associated with, with 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 the service, with the commemoration, that to me was deeply offensive. If uh, if I had just died and uh, John was going to hold a service to remember me by, I wouldn't want a photograph of Stuart Evans or you or whatever <laughs> put up in the church and have people weeping over uh, over the loss of somebody else. Mm. Um, at least. Ripperologists have tried valiantly to, 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 to be accurate in what they're doing. And also, I wonder why this alternative tour just didn't pick on some other people. Why do an alternative Jack the Ripper tour? If you want to talk about the lives of women in the East End of London in the late 19th century, why pick on Jack the Ripper's victims? Pick on, some, pick on somebody else. Because of what? The Ripper sells. Well, yes, obviously. But, mm. but <laughs> that means that their alternative Jack the Ripper tour is... Hypocritical. Hypocritical, exactly. Is it? They're, they're, they're selling it on the basis of Jack the Ripper. Oh, let's right. do a non-Jack the Ripper walk, but we'll call it the alternative Jack the Ripper walk and thereby draw attention to the fact that it's all to do with Jack the Ripper. That is hypocritical. The I, church I, service was hypocritical. I once tried to point out on Twitter to one of the organisers of the tour that they were using the uh, incorrect photographs. Um, three hours later, when I gave up after about a thousand tweets backing me, I, uh, I, I, I wasn't here. Yeah, I had to do it again. Um, yeah, it is, yeah um, one thing that Tom brought up about people from outside the field publishing books are reminding me of something. About mm. I think three years ago, Bruce Robinson, who wrote with Neil and I, published a Ripper book. Um, we yeah. all love Jack. And I think, from a you know literature, literary standpoint, it's probably the best received Ripper book I've ever heard of. It did the rounds at all the literature festivals. It had um, reviews in the newspapers, great reviews. Everyone seemed to love it. Uh, it was long-listed for, I think, the Samuel Johnson Award. The language in it was appalling. No, it I, was. I'm swearing. I mean, he was referring to the victims as whores. Mm. Um, there were homophobic remarks about people such as Prince Eddie. Yet, yet all the lovies and literary circles loved it. And we're the ones who get the flack for sexist language. It, he it, called it, the police niggers and faggots. It was repeatedly. a deeply <laughs> offensive book. The language was appalling. And above all else... Uh, it was a well. It was basically it was a polemic. It wasn't a history. Uh, right. It was factually inaccurate, uh, mm. totally factually inaccurate. Uh, that he would say things. I know one uh, colleague was deeply offended by the fact that he referred to Swanson uh, couldn't see a bottle of ink without fishing it for lies. 
shifting the there's end. no evidence at all that swanson lied about anything swanson being one of the senior investigators of the case it was yeah. a very very bad book but as john so rightly says it and he attacked paul Begin it repeatedly for no apparent reason other than he was threatened i believe i believe authors are threatened <laughs> by paul Begin. honestly <laughs> in, any any time you're going to spend your time in the book attacking yeah, authors you're threatened nice. by what they've written he was quite nice to me to be honest but I'd, uh <laughs> Okay, but, but but he well in I'm comparison glad he wasn't to, nice to me like that. Well, in comparison to what he said about Martin Fido and the like, so I mean, it, it was nice <laughs> to me. But people always get attacked. I mean, how many times do you read in the newspapers that Patricia Cornwall destroyed a sicket painting in order to, uh, well, for some reason or right, another, whatever? Yeah. Uh, she didn't. It was a it was a painting that. Uh, where, that she'd bought and it was damaged in transit and uh, I've worked with Patricia I've seen the documentation I know she's not lying uh, and yet you've got a, an author like Trevor Marriott who says in his recent book she will say that it was destroyed in transit right. which, in, which suggests that she's lying through her teeth Yeah. yeah the, am I right in uh, saying that there's not one place in either of Patricia Cornwell's books where she disputes the notion that the victims were prostitutes. Here, Patricia Cornwell is the best-selling ripper author of all time, and, and yet I haven't seen a single criticism of her or her book by, exactly. the, by the folks who are calling all ripperologists insensitive sexist pigs. And, and well, because Patricia Cornwell has the money to turn around and sue your ass for slander and defamation. Or Patricia Cornwell has 900,000 more Twitter followers. Most um, people who, who are attacking us are easy at punching down. They're not so good at hitting at their weight level or up. And that is just But it's interesting that a Maxime like Hallie Rubenhold goes after Maxine Jabarowski, um, yeah. a book that maybe no one has ever really read aside from the six of us sitting here today about the language he uses and how he describes the victims of Jack the Ripper but yet there's a Patricia Cornwell sitting out there completely left alone because their objective is to attack men it's the patriarchy they're attacking right. the patriarchy which is male ripperologists and it wouldn't make sense for them to turn their eye on to a, a lesbian female it just doesn't make sense from their perspective uh, in fact, it would be at cross purposes. So they just don't. And years ago, Paul might remember the title. It's skipping me. At the, so the, it was a feminist book written by a young lady um, who took a look at recent Ripper literature and, and put it under the microscope to, to nitpick it for um, feminist, you know, or anti-feminist things. And, um, you know, yeah, she... That was, uh, that was I, last I, year. <laughs> The, the Ripper Victims in Print is what it That's was. That's the one. And Absolutely. I thought she was kind of fair to me when she was talking about the Bank Holiday murder. She actually read the book press. She she understood what it but she took me to task for not in, not including enough information about Pearly Paul, um, the witness in the tavern case, which was ironic because I don't think there exists a book that has more information about Pearly Paul than the Bank Holiday murders, because I put like everything available in there. And, but from her perspective, I, you know, I just, I didn't talk enough about these women and da, 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 da. 
And it's just, it was like she, she couldn't find something in Nitpick, so she had to manufacture something. But then she goes on to talk about Paul Begg for about three chapters or something. But I, I'm, I'm waiting through the book. I'm waiting to see her attack Patricia Cornwell for misspelling Catherine Eddowes' name repeatedly in her first book, getting so much biographical information wrong about them. Um, you know, and, and well, now we're just ranting about how we're not treated fairly it, poor <laughs> men, not treated right by those feminists. Oh. Well, I was glad. I would have been offended if she hadn't uh, have attacked me. I, uh, you know, so I was I was glad for that. I've gotten worse from Trevor Marriott, who misspells my <laughs> name in every book he writes. Um, even though we're we're like fr- talk for years on the internet, he has my email. All of these things have my name. So. Uh, and then misquotes me in his books. I thought she treated me more fairly than than Trevor Marriott, who is supposedly a ripperologist. Um, well, it's no different than anything. If you read, it, let's throw this back to actual ripperology for a second. If you read a pure fact based book like Paul Beggs versus a suspect book, everybody comes into every situation with their own bias, and if they have a bias, no matter what it is, that's going to color how they read any source material and we have all seen suspect books or people they will manipulate the facts in order to make it fit who they believe is the ripper if it's you know a feminist wanting to attack ripperology they're going to pick and choose and manipulate manipulate the facts to present the case they want to present this is this is this is how the world works everybody is going to be manipulating and shifting facts in order to present the story that they want to tell. And unfortunately, there are a lot of, there are some avenues of attack that you can give about Ripperology or the Jack the Ripper case, but a lot of that is external things that aren't necessarily in our control. When you see these Jack the Ripper books where, you know, like I said, the woman's in this low-cut bosom heaving, you know, the it's like gore porn on the cover of some of these books and and we don't have any control over that and yet that is the image that's used to reflect us in the modern media or the popular media and and it and it's 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 no it's a bias issue it's this is what i think of this so that's the, what I'm going to choose to portray it. They're not going to go to Neil Sheldon's book, which John very nicely held up that showed the real ripper victim, you know, sitting there in her nice dress looking anything but like some, you know, overpainted sex tart, which is what, if you look at any of the popular portrayals, you know, Johnny Depp's movie with Heather Graham and all of the women there. And it's like, oh, okay, let's get a historical costumer in there and kind of, uh, show some reality here, but that's not what sells. So, well, you know, and funnily enough, From Hell I think did a, a more justice to the victims than a lot of these people now who are because they presented Mary Kelly as a prostitute and yet still worthy of of Fred Aberlein's love and still a human character and all of these things. Uh, she could be both. She could be a prostitute and she could be a real life woman worthy of love and intelligent and independent and all of those wonderful things. Um, a lot of the people uh, attacking our community don't feel that way. They feel like we have to redress the victims in, a, in our modern image of, of what we want them to have been and then take us to task for getting it wrong. It's just strange. It's, it's cannibalistic. It's weird. Jack the Ripper, as the murders were being committed, uh, 
Jack the Ripper, in inverted commas, developed a mythic existence, uh, mm -hmm. almost fictional uh, fantasy existence, featuring in works of fiction. There were stage plays. In America in particular, he was used in, uh, in advertising. Uh, there was uh, a rumor in London newspapers that some uh, sweetie manufacturer had started to produce uh, Jack the Ripper knives uh, in candy for kids. Uh, whether they ever actually did or not, I don't know. We now have a toilet spray called Jack the Ripper. You know, it kills nasty smells. Uh, there's, uh, there's, there, uh, there was a contemporary wax museum um, display con um, concurrent with the Ripper murders, right? Yeah. I don't know whether you remember, probably not, but there used to be a television series called uh, Only When I Laugh, which was a, a comedy sitcom uh, set in a hospital ward. And in the very first episode, a new patient arrives in the ward and uh, the the long-standing patient there, uh, who's played by James Bolam, figures, says, Welcome to Jack the Ripper Ward. Nothing else is said. It's just a reference. I saw Carry On Constable, which I think was the second or third Carry On film uh, that was on television the other night, and Jack the Ripper is referenced in that. It was referenced in Hancock's Half Hour back in the 50s. There are all these references. They They are made... In passing, without anybody having to know anything about Jack the Ripper, but it conveys a meaning. That's part of the fiction of Jack the Ripper. So when uh, a restaurant, uh, wherever it is in Singapore or whatever, opens up a, a, a Jack the Ripper burger bar and you can go and have your Elizabeth Stride burger or your Annie Chapman burger, uh, that's not glorifying a killer. That's just having... Uh, that's that, that's just using feeding off quite literally uh, the the myth. the myth of Jack the Ripper, the legend of Jack the Ripper. Well, the most and, popular and there are Jack the Ripper distinctions is uh, people say Jack the Ripper weather that even in America, well, we're, you know it's going to be Jack the Ripper weather tomorrow, and that indicates hard to see, you know, thick fog, you can't see anything. That's the myth, because as we as we Ripperologists know, during the actual murders, there was none of that. You could see just fine. Um, but that's the myth overtaking the reality, and that's just, yeah, it's just popular. Conscious, we're just conscious of Jack the Ripper. I mean, I'm an American. Jack the Ripper posed no danger to my people. He held in the largest, most powerful city in the world in the grip of his hand. Um, you know, he he's Moriarty. I mean, where do you think Moriarty came from? He... he uh, you know he's he's bigger than life. Why naturally people are going to be more interested in him and fascinated by him because we don't know who he was. He can be anything, anyone, anywhere. The Jack the Ripper, the the Ten Bells when it was called the Jack the Ripper Pub, wasn't commemorating Jack the Ripper the murderer. It was commemorating Jack the Ripper this legend, this mythical character. The horror figure closer to Dracula than... That's mm. right. In every tourist shop in London where they sell these little models and T-shirts that say, you know, my dad went to London and all he brought me back was this lousy T-shirt. All those kind of tat shops that you see all around London, every single one of them has a little bar towel 
or, or bar runner and coaster set of Jack the Ripper, supposedly from a Jack the Ripper pub. It has nothing to do with any Jack the Ripper pub in existence. Mm-hmm. But the point that is that Jack the Ripper is now so closely associated with the history of London in general and the East End specifically that uh, Jack the Ripper is, is, is now an iconic image as closely identified as uh, uh, the, the, the black cab or a red telephone or the, the London Bridge. And that's not an association with the man who eviscerated women on the streets of London. That's an association with the Jack the Ripper of the novels and the films and so on and so forth. And that's what the walking tours, virtually every walking tour I've ever been on, a good hefty percentage of the uh, of the people don't know anything about Jack the Ripper. That's why they're going on the walk. They've heard of the name. They want to find out more about him. They're tourists. They're going out from an evening of entertainment. Getting that balance right, of course, from a tour guide's perspective is, is quite tough. But that's what they're doing. That's, that's what the Ten Bells commemorated. That's what the museum in Cable Street is all about. It's just the equivalent of the Sherlock Holmes Museum that's in London. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with Jack the Ripper, really. It doesn't even have an awful lot to do with the mythic Jack. It's just a thing there to, to attract tourists. And they've got, they're, they're not bothered about anything. Mm. And, and it, if you separate the two, then an awful lot of what ripperologists and, and proper ripperology uh, get criticised for is really what's going on in this reverse side. But nobody sees that. Cowboy films don't reflect the real Wild West. War films don't generally reflect the reality of war. Right. We have we have entertaining films that that are based in the Second World War and use war as the background to to tell a story. Where Eagles Dare has got no more to do with the reality of the Second World War than half the stuff about Jack the Ripper has with, well, with, with the reality of Jack the Ripper. Romance films have nothing to do with real-life love, you know. Go stand outside of a woman's window with a boombox and see if they don't call the cops. <laughs> but but it's escapism. People want to see something a little different than reality. Yeah, I, I mean, I, all I'm saying is, I, I, you know, I know why people are... Uh, use the story it's it, it's it's a good story with with an infinite variety of uh, of different plot structures so you can do everything from the lodger uh through to a star trek story mm-hmm. um but that's not what ripperology is about and i don't if if that glorifies serial killing then that's something else but i i don't think uh, and and also why do people pick on on Jack the Ripper, and yet all these uh, programs uh, about serial killers like Criminal Minds and uh, things like this, they run for 16 series or whatever. Yep. Nobody's picking on that. Nobody's picking on all the books, you know, the top 10 serial killers of the world and the, the, the 63 worst serial killers. Mm-hmm. Uh, those, are f- those just recount the story. They don't do anything. They don't. They don't. Um, 
they're, they're not trying to achieve anything. They're not telling anything about the background or social history or any of the many things that ripperologists uh, are interested in and that they try to do. Well, so it's because, I, I mean, I get that, though, because ripperology, let's face it, whether we want it to be or not, it has become an industry. I mean, there oh. isn't an industry around Ted Bundy or there is a little bit of an industry, like maybe around somebody like H.H. Holmes because of the murder castle and and that kind of thing. But I mean, like you said, Jack the Ripper lends itself to such an industry by virtue of being unknown and you can put anything in whatever like like i said people who are historians are interested in it people who are forensic psychologists are into it people who uh just like the clothing of the period and started studying victoriana get into it it it, it lends itself to so much uh, interpretation and reinterpretation and reinvention that it literally has formed an industry like you could never have a Ted Bundy industry like you have with a Jack the Ripper industry and and so James because Patterson of that, has a Ripper book out I mean come on he's the biggest author alive yeah. uh, hunting Jack the Ripper um or something like that James Patterson has it and it's it's a young adult and romantic and all of that um, he's not under attack. Everyone's cool with him, and and that's fine. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. It is like like Paul said, like Ali said, it the name represents a very specific time and place in history, not necessarily murders, mm. but an era, a place that that is um, because of early Hollywood. Um, the people who made the films in the 1920s and 30s were children in the Victorian era. They were nostalgic for it, and they made these evocative films with the swirling fog and the gaslight, and that continued to go on for decades. And then people like Paul Begg grew up watching them on TV and became interested. And then my generation, I was a child when the centenary happened in 1988. I got interested moderately in that and then got older and started reading the book. Uh, it just and it perpetuates, and I've seen the in the my twenty years in the case, I've seen the interest just expound and grow and get bigger, and and it is it's for a variety of reasons. One of which are people obsessed with gory murder and who consider Jack the Ripper a hero. Those are none of the no actual Ripperologists fit that mold. Those are hanger honors, hangers honor, or whatever however you say that. Um, hangers that, on. They lie outside the periphery, and uh, and they 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 disappear. They go away. But um, you know, Charles Manson last year died, mm. and he was celebrated here in the states. I don't know about in the UK, and they were very careful about how they celebrated him. But celebrated him, they did, and you'd see the words "end of an era" um, come along, and. And endless documentaries. They're still coming. I just endless documentaries and books. You want to talk about an industry, and this is, this is because people are fascinated by him. And and I don't think that that is necessarily disrespecting the victims, but these people come along who do. Charles Manson defined the '60s in a way as a criminal. Jack the Ripper did the exact same thing. Um, for the 1880s going into the early 20th century. He marked the turning point in something. Um, all the pieces were there. Newspapers had proliferated. People could read. Um, 
he made international news. Telegraphs were transmitting information. All the American newspapers sent journalists to London to report on it. Mike Hawley knows this better than anybody. Uh, and it is an international cause celeb, the first. It was the first of its kind. And it's never been duplicated since. Another murder case where as many reporters were on the ground recording and we're only now in the last 10 years uh, discovering all of that literature. We, you know, uh, it's, it's so new. But um, for your purposes, Alec, what you're talking about, you're not talking about Ripperology. You're not responding to Ripperology. Your questions are about the public perception of Jack the Ripper, and your questions are about that. Um, but because we're an industry, as Ali said, people inevitably turn to the people whose names are on the books, who appear in the documentaries, and they want them to explain it and, and them to answer for all the bad stuff. Mm. And it's, it's hard to do when you're not part of it, because yeah. we're kind of outside looking yeah. in to what your industry is, how your industry, the, the media, is treating the case. And, not, and it's not necessarily bad. Things are only bad from if you take the perspective of, I want them to be bad. I can take any book, and if I want to nitpick it, there's plenty to, to do. Mm. Um, I have a question, and then <clears throat> maybe, and then hopefully Alec can, can, I know this is going on forever, but um, it's fascinating to ask a question. Um, <laughs> okay, so sometimes I get the feeling that, you know, when I see the anti-ripperology stuff, I sometimes get the sense of, well, I, oh, I hope it's just the flavor of the month and it will be something mm -hmm. that passes, right? Um, yeah. It's like a current trend kind of thing. But if you guys remember a few years ago, um, there was this huge public backlash against um, uh, billboards and bus advertisements um, in the fashion industry with... Um, Old, with anorexic looking models on them, right? Right. And, and so you would get um, people throwing paint on models, tra uh, on the billboards, trashing the billboards, protests about these um, anorexic models and all that stuff. And, and it created such a public outcry that the industry, the fashion industry, did make adjustments. Maybe not as much as the, the people who are opposed to them did, but now you're seeing um, runway models who are more plus-sized, you know. And, and so, so um, do you guys believe that uh, there's a lot of bitterness today, you know, coming from all of us. But do you do you, do any of you think that there are adjustments within Ripperology that we can make? Um, because they're throwing, because when the London Dungeon, of course, we have nothing to do with the London Dungeon, or and we have nothing to do with the exhibit down in Hastings that was offensive that got a bunch of criticism a few months ago. Um, I, I that, actually did, Jonathan. Um, when I was uh, when we uh, when we all know this that uh, was it a couple years ago when we found out Francis Tumbley was a hermaphrodite. The first, I'm telling you about it, a dozen people said when you write this. You better make sure you point out that you're not saying that you're that Tumbley might possibly be uh, Jack the Ripper because he's a hermaphrodite. I, I warned you. I think I was probably yeah. one of the first people to to warn you that, right? Yes, yes, and and I I took that seriously, and that's how I so that's how I wrote it that way for sure. Yeah. So so that's kind of my question is 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 like do do you guys 
with all this blame gaming going on, believe that there are actually some self criticisms and in ripperology that are valid. That that it's even possible for us to alter. I mean, no, I think because on we balance, can't... yes. I would well, say that. Ali says no, and Paul says yes. We don't control. Like, how do I control? Like, let's think of the the tour company that shall not be named. How do I control? <laughs> the product that they put out into the world. I right. can't. I cannot control that product. I have no control over She's that. She's referring no to the company, Alec, that um, yeah. dis, a Ripper Vision that um, uh-huh. pro- projects images of the victims in, in death on the walls of public buildings and things like that as part of the Ripper Tour in the East End. I can't control that. If I could, absolutely. But when, when there is no... It's not like Vogue magazine decides whose clothes are going to be seen. You know what I mean? There's there's no one controlling standard. I can't I cannot control what gets put on a tour. I can't get control what is on Facebook. I can't control what is on We can all control our little aspects of it. Absolutely. We like like Thomas said, if somebody come I make everybody go like, "Why do you want to join my website?" and they write in and if they write in I'm like, "Oh, Jack the Ripper is my hero. I've idolized him since I was 14." I'm like, boop, nope, you're not coming on my website. I can control that. Mm. I can't control. There's so many facets of this case, tour group, movies. I can't control the movie. Like, how do we don't have control over our quote unquote, like, this is our brand. We do not have the control over our brand. All of the, it's just too diverse. We cannot control because every, like I said, everybody's going to cherry pick what they see. And none of us have control over the branding. We just, uh, the movies are going to do that. The big, the big, um, you know, articles like the newspapers who come out and are like, oh, you know, Jack the Ripper, BS, something or another. We don't control the branding. So how do we control the image? Mm. There is an element of uh, responsibility that we can't, we do have, uh, we mentioned Maxim Jakubowski's book earlier on and the criticism, uh, Hallie Rubenhold's criticism of that. Uh, she didn't take into account the fact that this book was written back in 1995 or whenever it was uh, and was therefore reflecting the time in which it was written. Uh, and she didn't take into account the fact that Maxim Jakubowski has edited more books of eroticism than anything else anyway. So one might question Maxim's uh, uh, position there. But uh, but she was right in as much as what she criticized, were, were, which was basically what she interpreted as Maxim likening the victims to a beauty contest, which is not what he was really doing. He was just saying that uh, Jack the Ripper didn't pick the victims because they were uh, attractive women, uh, th- that their appearance didn't appear to, to matter much. Uh, so we, we, can, we, we take a, a more responsible way in terms of what we're writing and how we discuss the subject and, and so forth. And we have been very critical of certain authors uh, when they have produced books which make extravagant claims for things. Right. The the outburst on, on Casebook against the Edo Shaw 
actually disgusted me. I, I thought, here we have all these people uh, being really critical about a book they haven't even read. Uh, and But in a sense, they were policing their, you know, their own backyard in a way uh, by, by condemning this because there was no evidence that this piece of material had ever belonged Correct. to to one of the victims at all. So uh, even without knowing anything about the DNA that was supposedly found on this uh, piece of material, um, it, it was fairly reasonable guess that, that the whole theory was going to collapse. Mm. But uh, I recently read a, a chapter on this in a book by a man called Adam Rutherford, who is uh, does a, a is on the radio at the moment. I mean, not literally at the moment, but but now <laughs> um, doing a a program about science. And he discusses the DNA. He's fairly disparaging about ripperologists at the beginning of this thing. And although he does refer to the fact that the DNA wasn't done by a ripperologist, uh, but by a scientist, uh, the fault of the book is all placed on the author of the book but the author of that book didn't have a book until the scientist who is a fully accredited responsible university employed scientist mm. with expertise in dna he is the one who did the you know took the dna and examined the dna and identified the dna that book is down to him and yet Adam Rutherford kind of puts the blame onto ripperologists and leaves out the person who was one of his own, who was the scientist that was Yari Luhalin, or however his name is pronounced, um, who was responsible for it. So we get the flack from things which... When it's as as everybody is saying, when it's not our fault and when we're not responsible for that, mm. I even read today in a book a new biography of uh, of Oscar Wilde, where in a footnote the author observes that Oscar Wilde was once heard to say that if he couldn't be a poet or an artist, he'd be a murderer because it was better to be remembered for being a murderer than to go to the grave unremembered. Uh, and then he, that the author of the book says, surprised that nobody's come along and uh, picked on this and suggested that Oscar Wilde was Jack the Ripper. Well, you know, that kind of insults people. I, I know we have lots of ludicrous theories. That's part and party of the, of, of the business. But, but it's not all pick on somebody and build up a theory against him when there's no evidence. Virtually all the people who do suggest, and I say virtually or not all, uh, pick on a suspect, do so uh, in a genuine belief that they, they have got some reason for, for believing that he was, the, he was the ripper. My Hawley does it with Tumblety. Nobody can accuse him of, of picking on Tumblety just because he was a fellow American and he wants an American to be Jack the Ripper and thereby steal our national murderer from underneath our... Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the, he's, he's advocating Tumblety for very good reasons. Um, 
whether academic historians would would actually agree that those are very good reasons is another question but uh, uh, the thing about fringe subjects like this is that it gives the opportunity to and I don't want to sound patronizing here but it gives the opportunity to ordinary people to read the books think about the theories that are being suggested work out the arguments for themselves decide whether they agree with them or disagree with them and also they can go out and they can do some research and there's a very real possibility that they could come up with some tidbit of new information that we would all be grateful to have right if i could just jump in quickly i'm gonna have to shoot off in a minute guys but it's been great but if i could just jump in with the little sort of sum up point of my own uh, now we seem to be coming towards the end uh yeah i think what's been from my point of view I mean, I just wanted to jump in really because the tours have been mentioned a couple of times. I'm conscious I'm the only tour guide on this uh, on this uh, recording today, mm. and I think what has been said is absolute. I completely agree that from what Paul was saying, you know, Jack the Ripper is a myth. It is it is shorthand. It can mean serious research. It can mean utter nonsense. And in terms of what can we do about it? I don't think there is a we to do anything about it. As I, said, as I said earlier, this isn't a proper academic field. I think all any individual can do is seriously look at the way they approach it and think, is this something I'm comfortable with? Why am I interested in it? And I think that's, and how am I going to present it in a way that chimes with my own you know, ethics, if you like. And I think that's what most of us do. But you need to acknowledge that there has been an audience for this. That's, you know, ripperologists and ripper tour guides did not create this interest. There's been an interest in this case since people renting out their windows in, in Hanbury Street to get a look at the murder site it, back in 1888. You know, and that's why you get the Jack the Clipper barbers and the Jack the Ripper toilet spray that was mentioned and stuff like that and, and it's such a wide range of things that will play off that myth that someone writing a suspect book is not responsible for someone making a toilet spray and vice versa um, and I think it just comes down to every individual thinking am I doing this we haven't got a code of ethics have we so you can't even say am I doing this right but am I doing this in a way that I am comfortable with and that's all any of us can do from a tour guide point of view that's something I know myself and a lot of my colleagues spend a lot have spent a lot of time thinking about thinking about how is the best way I can do this in a responsible way but also let's be honest in an entertaining way because you've got to look at the audience as well and there, there is an audience for this thing and whether it's an audience for toilet sprays or for tours or for documentaries or Hollywood films. Mm. And one thing I find a bit upsetting about some of the responses to this has been, there's this sense that ripperologists as a, as a whole, you know, we're not only are we misogynistic and obsessed with gore, but there's an implication that we're also somehow exploiting people. You know, these there is there would be no ripperology in inverted commas if there weren't people buying it, whether that's the tours, whether that's the books. I'm aware that's the same kind of defence as you know drug dealers might make. <laughs> There's people that want my product, but it's true. And all you can do is, if that's your business, all you can do is try and 
present your product in a responsible way. And I think most tour guides try and do that. But it upsets me a little bit that there seems to be this undercurrent that, well, everybody interested in this case is awful and terrible and should be ashamed of themselves. Well, I'm sorry, the people I get come on my tours are not misogynists. They're not gore peddlers. They're not hateful, uneducated people. Just They're people dealer. who want... Yeah, yeah, there's probably a few. Um, <laughs> but they're, they're people who want a nice night out. They've gone for a nice meal. They've heard a bit about Jack the Ripper. Oh, there's a tour. We'll go and do that. Then we'll go to the pub. Then we'll go and have a curry in Brick Lane. That'll be a nice evening. In the morning, they've gone to the tower. Tomorrow, they'll probably go and do the London Eye. It's not... No one's exploiting those people. And those people aren't stupid enough to be exploited. You're the least exploitative thing uh, mentioned because they're in the prices of all the rest. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd just say, though, that there, Don Rumbelow was making a, an argument that I read uh, quite recently. Don, Don is also a Jack the Ripper tour guide, an ex-policeman. Mm. Um, and he was saying that he thinks that the tour guides should all be blue badge guides and be be trained and uh, and everything and though there is a bad argument for that uh, and, and Don would be supportive of that being a blue badge guide himself uh, but that would be one measure one could take to to lessen uh, people who project the images of uh, of the ripper victims on walls but on the other hand there is an entertainment side, as was just being said, where people are going for a night out. And whilst I personally deplore the idea of, uh, of, of people being dressed up in Victorian costume to lead the, the, the guides being dressed up in Victorian costume to lead the tourists around. Quick disclaimer, was... I don't do that, Paul. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't no, do that, but... Paul. <laughs> But, but well, thank thank goodness for that. Um, I, I can't think of anything worse. Well, really. and half yeah. the time they're not even dressed in Victorian; they're dressed in like drunken pirate gear or something. It's not even like proper clothing representative right. of the period. It's like, oi, I'm a pirate. Let me take you on a Jack the Ripper tour. Like, what the? You know. Yes. So. Well, that 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 there is an argument. I was reading a PhD. Uh, thesis uh, a little while back where somebody was saying that uh, Jack the Ripper was uh, feeding into or off the uh, sort of neo-Victorianism the uh, and um, what's what's the term that, that almost a science fiction-y steampunk steampunk yeah steampunk as a as neo-Victorianism and neo-Victorian steampunk uh, and that Jack the Ripper's feeding, feed, feeding all that kind of thing, which is another area that we get criticised for, is that Jack the Ripper is actually creating a false image of Victorian society, mm. pretty much just like every other uh, television documentary or series or whatever set in the past. Alec, I do have a question. You're a journalist, and you, yeah. you've heard just today, and you hear all mm. the time, journalists are constantly coming under fire. Yeah. Um, for being sensationalists, um, you know, fake news. Here in America, it's, people, you know, we have a, a certain very public figure who talks about fake news a lot. Oh, yeah. and, he, and 
kind of, you you have to be able to relate because like yeah, all you can do is control what you write, what mm-hmm. you put out in print, um, how you follow up your sources, and you do yeah. the best job you can. Um, and you can't answer for your entire industry, but uh, it must you know it, it must you know chap your ass. Uh, when you, you know, you hear people make generalized terms about your field as a whole, you take it personally, relate to a lot of what we're saying. Yeah. And I think the thing that one of the most frustrating things to me is kind of, you talk to a lot of people who, you know, far my senior, like they've, they've been journalists for 20, 30 years. And when they started, people kind of would welcome them more and be more trusting and like would be kind of happy at the idea of talking to a journalist and would be willing to tell their story but now i've found i've just found that you've been you've been exceptionally welcoming and opening open with me but so many people as soon as you say you're a journalist they instantly and potentially rightly so they get so closed off and think that you're out to get them and you're going to twist their words against them and it's uh it's quite a difficult kind of um mountain to kind of function against um i totally get um and certainly the idea of kind of, you know, journal- journalism is a broad church. And even within certain organizations, like the one that certain people might work for. Um, and it's kind of, you can kind of get tarred by the brush, the same brush as others, which feels kind of unjust. Um, He's one of us. He's our peeps. <laughs> You're our peeps, Alec. Okay, well, is that it then, everybody? Yes. Nice chatting with yeah. you, Alec. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks, Alec. Nice one. All right. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Thank you, everybody. Bye. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye.